Hey friends, welcome to Conversations with Kenzie, a podcast hosted by yours truly, Kenzie Brenna. No topic goes unturned here. We talk about everything with everyone. We like to get raw and sometimes we get heavy and sometimes we swear. So I'm warning you now. Also, we are working remotely. So audio quality between host and guest may differ. Lastly, check out our show notes for giveaways, fun promotions, or discounts to our favorite stuff. Enjoy the show. All right. Hi, David. Hi. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. It's a rainy day here in the Bay Area, and uh, I miss I miss Canada, as we were just talking about. But yeah, <laughs> happy to be here with you. Uh, likewise, it is super gray, super snowy today. And it's so interesting because I find on these days, I actually just love staying inside so much, yeah. but because of COVID and because I've been inside so much, I'm like craving to go outside, but the yeah. weather's bad and my, my head's like all jumbled up from it. Yeah, um, I bet. But I'm so excited to have you here today. I found you through your conversation with Sam Harris on his Waking Up app a little while ago. Like I would definitely say about over a year ago, I think Mm -hmm. at least. Um, And I was so happy that he was having someone on talking about uh, trauma-informed mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely interesting hearing your conversation because I felt so validated okay. while uh, you were saying some of the things that um, you both were talking about. And meditation has not been an easy journey for me, and mindfulness has not been easy. And when I was, you know, hardcore into the uh, yoga community, meditation was kind of seen as this second practice that you have to attach to your yoga practice. Mm -hmm. And when I was hardcore into yoga, I like was forcing myself to meditate and it was not fun and I did not enjoy it and I didn't reap any of the benefits of it whatsoever. And then listening to your conversation with Sam Harris, I, it just, everything kind of clicked and made sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've been gobbling up your work since, and it's just been so affirming and so validating, and I'm really excited to chat with you today. Mm-hmm. Would you want to start off by telling us a little bit about your background um, and how you got into trauma-informed mindfulness? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to, and I love that you found me. That's great. I, I have Sam Harris is someone I really respect around his meditation work and a number of people have heard that interview. So that's great that we get to connect. And I mean, the main headline, Kenzie, that you similar to what you just shared in your intro around yoga is that my work basically says, hey, meditation is a really powerful thing to do. And including with yoga, anytime that we're asking someone to pay close and sustained attention to their inner world, it's a big ask. And a lot of amazing things can come from that. And also there can be some challenging things that come from that as well. So that's what I've mainly focused on is kind of the pros and the cons of meditation. And um, with that conversation with Sam, it was focusing on what are some of the challenges that can come up uh, and how I got there, maybe similar to you. I, I grew up in, I grew up in Canada and Toronto and then um, was really into meditation. And I actually trained as a therapist in Vancouver and my main work was with male sex offenders. Um, so <clears throat> my entry point into 
healing work was really around working with men who had committed sexual crimes, but also were often victims, um, a large percentage were. So I, that was really my entry point to thinking about trauma and how trauma plays out in um, very intense ways through generations and the social context of trauma. Uh, I was on a meditation retreat. I had a pretty hard experience where I was having flashbacks of some of the work that I had done um, with the men. And long story short, it led me to this curiosity about where does meditation help when it comes to trauma? Where does meditation maybe not help as much? And what would anyone meditating need to know in order to practice safely and effectively and, and ideally have a, a positive experience? Mm, that was such a great succinct way to bring about like your life's work and everything yeah. that you've gone I've through. I've had some practice now. It's been a year or so or two of podcasts. I'm like, how can I say this and not make it like 20 minutes long? Like, oh and my then gosh. I was in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. This happened when I was five years old. Right, right. And then, and yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Something that, um, I mean, you said so many things there and one, I just want to, you know, credit your work with male sex offenders because I think that that's very, very, very important and important for restorative justice and for community responsibility and reconciliation. And it's really, really, really hard work. And so I just want to commend you for your work with that. And when you mentioned, you know, having meditation being a big ask to turn inward. Mm. Um, I'm really excited to explore more of that topic today and how meditation can help or not be helpful because it's all, almost, or maybe not almost always, but a lot of the time it's seen almost as this unfailing way to um, have peace of mind. Like, you know, sure. if you just need to meditate and or you just need to like quiet down your mind, right. not really realizing how complex that can be. So do you want to tell us what exactly trauma-sensitive mindfulness is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Basically, trauma, people will have heard, might have heard the term trauma-sensitive or trauma-informed, which is pretty common. And my the way I think about it is, quite literally that the practice is sensitive to the needs of people who are struggling with trauma. So trauma-sensitive yoga um, is a good example. It sounds like you did yoga. Is that right? Have you ever been to a trauma-sensitive yoga class? Oh, I have not. Yeah, I hadn't either. And someone invited me. And I don't know if you heard this, but you walk into a trauma-sensitive yoga class and there's these tokens. Have you seen these tokens that you can have? Oh, it's so cool. So you know how sometimes there's adjustments? in a class mm -hmm. where people will, the, the teacher will give you like a manual hands-on adjustment for whatever, downward dog, or there's um, these tokens that I saw in a trauma-sensitive yoga class, which on one side says basically, yes, I'm open to uh, an assist. And the other side says, no, thank you. And so it's a way that uh, someone who's a yoga student can communicate basically their needs, what they want, and that you can gain consent with a person in a nonverbal way. And, you know, for someone that's experienced interpersonal trauma, you know, some unsolicited touch might be really intense. And if you're in a yoga class, it's a complete stranger. And so that to me is a really creative example where uh, a number of trauma professionals said, what could we do inside of this methodology of yoga, for example, or practice to make this sensitive to people who are struggling with trauma. 
And that's really the entry point. Uh, and this comes up in hospitals, in institutions where people are saying, how do we make a trauma-sensitive classroom, for example, or a trauma-sensitive hospital? And I applied that, I guess, epistemology to meditation uh, in a very practical way. Like what would a teacher need to know to make sure that meditation was safe for someone who was coming in with trauma? And in the age of COVID, you know, we can assume, I think, safely that take 30 people in a class, there's a good chance someone's going to be struggling with, with trauma. I just want to say quickly, it's also not to coddle people. It's not to say, oh, we have to be careful. You know, it's actually just assuming trauma is there and how do we work with it skillfully? Absolutely. So uh, I have to point out that while I have not actually been to a trauma-sensitive mindfulness class, there is a really, really, really wonderful meditation studio here in Toronto called Home. Oh, cool. uh, if you're ever back here, I would love to to bring you to it. It's uh, owned by two friends of mine, and they are trauma-informed psychotherapists. And uh, they created these different types of rooms to have different types of meditation practices. Wow. And one of the rooms uh, when i was when they've showed me around the studio one of the rooms had these small little twinkling lights on the ceiling and i asked them what that what is that for and they said well for some people it's not actually safe for them to do closed eyed meditation so we like to use these lights uh, in the ceiling to have something for them to focus on mm -hmm. so that way they're not staring at a white ceiling basically. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something that's, that's uh, interactive, something like a focal point. And I'm sure that we'll talk a little bit about that. What, what maybe some therapists or uh, teachers can do to help like with focal points or anchors or whatnot. Um, Absolutely. You mentioned also coddling, which I'm so excited to talk to you about later on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so excited. I'm so curious about your thoughts on that. Can you actually define trauma for us? Because I think that this kind of almost goes hand in hand with the coddling thing. I know that trauma is is a word that is used a lot more today than before. Mm -hmm. um, so just getting that definition down for us. For sure. Yeah. For better, for worse, in my experience, there's a there's a concept, something known as concept creep, uh, which is, I've forgotten the author, apologies, but it was someone saying, you know, in the humanities, there's often a number of terms that used to mean one thing that are expanding into different realms. And so, and as you said, with trauma, there's a lot more awareness about trauma, but then I can hear it also overused. Someone says, gosh, that the traffic jam was really traumatic. And mm -hmm. so I do think we need to be I think there, it's worthwhile setting up some boundaries um, around trauma. So here's the definition I work with, um, that trauma is really traumatic stress is the most intense form of stress that we can experience as humans. We're all experiencing stress on some level, even getting the computer set up to have this interview with you. <laughs> There's some degree of like, okay, can I do this, get this set up? And you know, stress is neither good nor bad. It's just a, a demand on right. the nervous system, right? And then when we have traumatic stress, we're really talking about survival-based responses. So a definition that I use is traumatic stress is the response to shocking and emotionally overwhelming situations that may involve actual or threatened death, serious injury, or threat to physical integrity. And that definition is very closely aligned with um, what's known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, which is kind of the the many will know is the main psychiatric 
um, uh, criteria that people will implement, but that's really aligned with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder um, diagnosis, which is um, actual threat and death, serious injury. In the DSM, it's sexual violation, but I'd like to expand that a little bit to say any kind of threat to physical integrity. So whatever whatever brings up our survival responses. And, and I think of it as, what are the things that we live through that were too much and that we were unable to integrate and that evoked a certain survival response that didn't complete in the moment? And that's where trauma can hang around. And that's where, it's, where trauma is so painful as it can continue on indefinitely, that people can have this ongoing, these ongoing symptoms of trauma that where time doesn't necessarily heal all wounds. So trauma is tricky, but that's that's my definition. What would you, I don't know, how does that sound to you? Or what would you add or, or um, take away from that? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that that is just, it's such a brilliant definition. And I think that the words that kind of popped out to me or the phrases was, is being unable to integrate your experience into your everyday life. And, and the this incompletion, like, like it's constantly almost on loop in the background mm-hmm. and it's like an unhealed wound kind yeah. of in a way yeah, that, and I, and my friend, uh, my friend Jake, who is a therapist ended up at one point saying that uh, trauma can be the, something that is too much too soon or too sudden Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, really compacted into our nervous system mm-hmm. that hasn't had a chance to like, f- uh, free itself, which is why it like can almost live in us. Yeah. And I, I, so I think that you're, and I obviously like I'm with you that I kind of disagree with the definition of the DSM one. I think it definitely needs to be broadened and the DSM should be updated like maybe once a year, not once every five years. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And, and so that's absolutely perfect. And it's interesting how this has just started to kind of be talked about so much because I feel like, uh, I, I don't know the percentage of people that have gone through trauma, but it just seems that there's like an overwhelming amount of people that have definitely experienced trauma mm-hmm. at some point in their life or, or whatnot. And so it's almost like, there's like this disheartening sense of it of being like, oh my God, how are we just beginning to talk about it? And then, like you said, there's this overwhelming amount of people that are talking about it, like in the niche spaces that we are, like trauma informed or trauma sensitive is is everywhere. And I was going to say, how are we able to? It, I, I was curious about maybe what language should we use if we're not necessarily talking about trauma, um, but we're talking about something that might be quite close to it. Sure, sure. I used to, I often use the word um, dysregulation Mm. and and meaning by that, I mean the dysregulation of the nervous system, which, you know, we'll all experience that to some degree. I mean, you said it, that in all likelihood in our lifetimes, it's pretty hard to avoid traumatic, potentially traumatic experiences. And then there's this uh, mystery of why is it that some people might be able to integrate or move through that overwhelming experience while others end up with ongoing symptoms. And there's, you know, countless amounts of research of people trying to really understand what are the different factors of resilience and et cetera that help with that. But you just asked the question, remind or tell me again, like that question's a great one. Will you just, we say it in a in different way? Yeah. So 
I know for a lot, uh, I think that you you answered it perfectly, just talking about feeling dysregulated at certain times, but not necessarily attaching that to the language in trauma. Like, I, like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like how would we actually talk about something that maybe doesn't fit inside that definition? Is that what you're meaning? Yeah, because I'm almost thinking of like, let's say, you know, I want to bring a friend to a trauma-informed uh, meditation class. Right. And my friend might think like, I don't right. really need this. Like I haven't gone through anything traumatic. And I'm like, but we've all gone through dysregulation that maybe we can benefit from these practices or whatnot. Mm, that's great. No, that's that's really important because, you know, when I, when I wrote this book that came out on trauma-sensitive mindfulness, I think it was maybe three, we're in a new year now, so three and a half or four years ago. And, you know, the field has definitely changed in that people, uh, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, meditation is often thought about as a pretty innocuous practice. So, you know, how could, why would we need trauma-informed meditation? It seems like meditation is just going to help for most kinds of stress. And then since then, people are now starting to be more nuanced about it and say, okay, well, what would, what would a trauma-informed practice look like? But to your point, I think it's easy to get hung up in definitions of trauma. And I mean, I've had this experience. I know others that have had this and they go, well, was this experience that I lived through, should I consider this a trauma? Do I need to go to a trauma professional? Do I need to go to this great example that you just said, like bring someone to a trauma-informed class and they go, well, I don't know if this is for me. So actually, I do think that a different frame around this is something like trauma and intense stress will impact our nervous systems in pretty profound ways. And for anyone listening, you could think of it like our nervous system has an accelerator and a brake, sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And when we're dysregulated, the brake and the accelerator are kind of out of balance. Maybe the, maybe one is, you know, the accelerator slammed, we're super anxious. Maybe the brake slammed, we're kind of checked out. Or in the case of trauma, both pedals can be slammed to the floor. You know, we can have this ongoing sense of like hyperactivation while also feeling somewhat dissociated. So when we're talking about trauma, we're really working with the nervous system in a deep way. And so when I, when I see people doing powerful trauma-informed work, they're really saying, how can I a, have this person feel safe on some level and be in what's known as a window of tolerance. So we could talk more about that, but really enabling someone to get the benefits out of practice. Because if we're in a super dysregulated nervous system and we're trying to meditate, it's really effing hard. And that's not to say meditation won't be helpful, but if someone's just really dysregulated and their accelerator slammed to the ground, they may need some strategies to actually come into what's in like, their window, this optimal zone of arousal to get the best out of practice. So it's not to say meditation is not helpful, it's to say they might need a couple of tools to mm. actually get the benefits. Absolutely. I'm curious if you can even just talk about the benefits of meditation, because let's say someone's listening to this and yeah. they are thinking like, okay, well, I've gone through trauma. I've always tried to meditate. It's never felt good. What's the point? You know, um, even if let's say David and Kenzie give me the tools to help right. me along with this mindfulness uh, practice, what's the benefit of meditation that we would want to have these tools under our belt to be able to pull out and use when we're in these practices? That's a great question. I, I give two responses. One is in a more technical way, enhanced self-regulation. Mm 
So mindful research around mindfulness and meditation tells us that in a couple of different ways, one is the regulation of our attention, second is emotional regulation, body awareness. These all increase the more that we meditate and that we practice. When it comes to trauma, the more regulation of our attention, the more awareness we have of our body, often the more effective we are at actually regulating ourselves. And meaning that we have more of a sense of stability, of um, being connected to ourselves and able to string together thoughts. You know, it's really hard. It'd be really hard to do this interview if I was super anxious because, you know, when we're up there, it's just, it's hard to actually be regulated. So self-regulation is one. But then a second way to think about it is that if you're experiencing ongoing trauma, you're often being pulled into the past. Trauma will often pull us into the past from overwhelming sensations. It could be flashbacks to a traumatic experience. We are continually experiencing the present through a body which is reliving an overwhelming traumatic experience from the past. And that's just one of the most painful aspects of trauma. It's like, God damn it, this thing happened, but I'm reliving it over and over, even though I might quote unquote know that I'm safe. So if trauma pulls us into the past, mindfulness and meditation is about bringing us into the present. So the two are actually, there's a deep remedy in some ways, or not medicine, what's the word I wanna use here? Um, antidote. If trauma is pulling us into the past, mindfulness and meditation allow us to wake up over and over again in the present. Quick example, so I'm working with a client who is having a flashback of an overwhelming experience. And then with mindfulness goes, I know that I'm in David's office re-experiencing this trauma. And that just that little bit of space that you can experience from a traumatic stimuli can actually be the difference between being regulated and dysregulated. So those are a couple different ways that that, that would help. Uh, this so beautifully said, and it's honestly making me crave, like going to go sit on my bed and close my eyes for a bit <laughs> and mm -hmm. meditate. Um, because those are such beautiful positives that we do get from meditation and that we do get from mindful practices. I'm curious if you could actually differentiate between like a mindful practice and a meditative practice, because mm -hmm. I know that sometimes people, and again, I, I loved earlier how you kind of freed us from definitions, you know, not getting too stuck in, mm -hmm. in defining and creating, you know, boundaries between words and whatnot, because sometimes, you know, words are very alive and they can mean different things to different people. But let's say like I decide to journal, you know, and I have my music going and I have a candle and I feel really at peace and I'm making a gratitude list. And I think that I would say that's like, you know, a mindful practice or a meditative practice, but it's not meditation. Mm -hmm. Um, so are those things okay to say? No, it's great. I mean, I think that journaling with a candle uh, can be an amazing practice. And and this is a great chance to be precise uh, about how I'm using mindfulness. So I actually I really appreciate you asking. Um, the definition I use is pretty traditional uh, in that I think of mindfulness as sustained present moment attention. And that that sustained present moment attention is cultivated often through meditation or through particular kinds of meditation. Another way that I 
I've heard it talked about by um, someone named Joseph Goldstein is that mindfulness is our ability to know what's happening when it's happening. So if you were to go lay in your bed and close your eyes and, and practice, you know, you could do a meditation where you're kind of uh, focused on resilience and what brings you resource. And that would be amazing. I think of mindfulness as the ability to, to actually hone one's concentration and then staying very awake in the practice. And that when you uh, become lost in thought or distracted, that you come back to building the muscle of mindfulness of knowing what's happening when it's happening. So the reason I think that's important is I'm going to come back to that client I was telling you about. So imagine the client, what's happening in the moment, if they can have a mindful moment, they're realizing, oh, I'm in David's office and what's actually happening, I can recognize that I'm having this flashback to trauma. Now, if they've done some meditation practice that morning, there's more of a likelihood that they'll be able to get that space and they've had that strength of mind. If they're more practiced in kind of like meditations that are more resourcing or kind of guided visualizations, I don't necessarily know that that carries over into the other. So I think you could say contemplative work generally, I think is really helpful, but mindfulness in particular, I try to narrow it down to that very focused way of practicing and building a muscle of, of present moment attention. What would you add or what, what do you, th how does that land with your experience? I so appreciate and love you asking questions back. It's so it's <laughs> yeah. so it jar it's so jarring because not too many guests do that. I'm Canadian, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> so polite. I th I think that ever I mean I'm just like check marking everything that you said and it in it and I feel like I'm learning as I'm listening to you yeah, talk right true. now. Yeah. I heard a really do you know um, a gentleman? Uh, his name is Daniel Schmottenberger. Yeah. Why do I know? I don't remember why I know his name. Oh my gosh. He is like such a role model for me and I'm oh, a distant, cool. you know, he doesn't have no, he has no idea who I am, but I'm a distant <laughs> student of his. Yeah. He, uh, he's part of the Neurohacker Collective. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So one time he said, you know, mindfulness is a synonym for noticing. Mm. And that has been a much more accessible term for me instead of being mindful. It's, it's about what am I noticing right now? And that has made me be able to like hook on to my present moment attention and be able to cultivate a little bit more mindfulness. So yeah, for me, I, I, I think that from what I heard from you um, is that, you know, meditation or these meditative practices, it's kind of like going to the gym and doing exercise, but um, the mindfulness comes when we're like actually picking up the weight and focusing on how many reps we're doing or whatnot. This is a great, this will be fun because in the conversation with Sam, this actually came up around weight. So let's see if we could tie these together. Mm -hmm. And I love that noticing actually feels when you said that i'm like oh, that's that's, an, that's a very accessible term because on some level i think that that is what mindfulness is it's that ability to notice what's actually mm -hmm. happening and that that's so helpful with symptoms of trauma you're noticing what's happening as you're going and you can make good decisions wow i'm noticing that i'm kind of anxious and overwhelmed let me actually not go to whatever or we could talk about covid here as well but the but the weights metaphor so I think of trauma as an injury, 
and some people actually talk about trauma as like a moral injury or a physiological injury. But let's let's just for a moment say trauma is an injury to a person. And that meditation is a practice, as you said, around weights. Like you're actually asking someone to engage in a practice. If you if someone has an injury, like my mom hurt her shoulder uh maybe a year and a half ago, she went to a physiotherapist. They don't start her with push-ups. They actually start her with some modified exercises to build towards a certain practice of maybe more push-ups. It's similar with trauma and meditation as I see it. Someone who's experiencing trauma that has an injury, you wouldn't necessarily throw them in the deep end of a seven-day retreat that actually you'd want to build towards it over time. Now, again, we can talk about the reasons that people can end up re-injuring themselves inside of meditation practice but i actually really i love that metaphor around around weights and that you want someone weightlifting like they are building that muscle of awareness and noticing and that the more they can do that the more likely they can heal trauma in your uh on your podcast in your first episode with will kabat-zinn you uh, he said it so perfectly um and you both were talking about this very a baby step approach to mindfulness. And I just, I love that so much because it does make it so accessible. It makes it so tangible and it, and it is less intimidating. And mm-hmm. both of you were discussing this idea of like, you know, when you're learning how to swim, you don't learn how to swim from San Francisco to Alcatraz. <laughs> like you're not going to mm-hmm. be thrown into the ocean. Um, you start in the kiddie pool. And, and I love that. And I think that that takes off the intimidation factor because, um, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this as well. I'm a quite staunch atheist. And so meditation used to be part of something that was almost spiritual. And in the years of becoming an atheist, it's changed. Uh, it's It was less to do with spirituality and more to, um, it, and that's like s- such another podcast episode, but yeah, sure, uh, sure. <laughs> um, but it, uh, meditation for me is definitely more about calming and regulating my nervous system rather than getting in touch with something the, uh, higher or beyond myself. And I feel like meditation was so intimidating for me for so long because I was trying to get in touch with that higher being. Like I was trying, I was making it about this like abundance and living a specific life and it had all of these meanings attached to it. What are your thoughts on all of that? I think that's right. I think that it, that meditation based on so many factors that you just named is connected to so much history and cultural history and baggage on some level. Edward Said talks about Orientalism uh, in I think it was like the late 70s, just saying this idealized and somewhat romanticized notion that certain Westerners can have around um, uh, Eastern, quote unquote, Eastern cultures where meditation was developed, be it India or Southeast Asia. Or So I think I mean, I had this experience when I started meditating in Toronto. It was in the annex. I was just down the street at a, at a young adult meditation group, and it just had all these trappings of, of like feeling like I'm doing something really religious or important. When really, what it was was just learning. The, the more that I look back on it, that I was learning how to steady my mind and cultivate just enough concentration to even just notice when I was lost in thought. Like that took years. And I'm still a terrible meditator in many ways. And so I, I just, I hear you. And I think where this all gets quite interesting and tricky, and maybe this is another podcast, is, well, 
if, if, if say in Buddhism, people have been practicing for 2,600 years, why does there need to be trauma-informed meditation? Like, you know, hasn't it, why would you think that we need to do this new thing, contemporary, oh, a new contemporary lens? And the deeper that I've gone down these rabbit holes, the more I've learned that actually a lot of Buddhist practice has been trauma-informed. Um, I do think that contemporary trauma work has a lot to bring to the table, but it's really tricky to your point. How do you know when someone's having a flashback and when is that in another tradition actually held as good news? Maybe this is some kind of purging or so how we assess an experience that we're having, it really matters. And inside a trauma informed practice like your, what was the um, studio that you, um, that you mentioned? Uh, home. Home. You're here. I'm trying to like, I bet they have a whole framework. I don't know if they're secular or Buddhist or, but they have a whole, they'll have a whole framework to explain when to lean in, when to back off. And so I'd encourage any listeners to find the people that you, when you sit with them, you go, oh yeah, like this person's speaking my language. I settle around them. What they're saying makes sense. And, and, and all to say, there's a lot we could talk about with um, how this all pins to different religious traditions and cultural artifacts. That's a really great point and segues into the next little bit of conversation is let's say someone listening to this and, you know, they're nodding along and they're like, yeah, you know, I've definitely gone through some shit, but I, I really want to develop a mindfulness practice. I really want to develop um, a meditation practice. It's almost like you have to, it's almost, it's very similar to choosing like a right therapist. Like it's trial and error, finding yeah. who will be a fantastic teacher for you. And we're so lucky today that we just get all of these really wonderful voices that can come out of our phones and that we can watch online. And we're definitely not lacking in that area whatsoever. But I'm curious, what should someone um, look for when they are approaching a meditative practice? Are they looking for meditation practices that you know aren't too long, that are guided, um, that have music playing along with them, or is this really just such a specific to the individual type question that yeah. it's hard to generalize an answer? No, it's such a great question. My advice to anyone looking, whether they, as you just said, been through some shit or they haven't, or wherever they're coming from, is to just really trust themselves. Just really trust that you will know when you are in contact with a teacher or a tradition that has something to offer. And where I've, from all the interviews over 15 years now, where I've seen people run into more difficulty or, or challenge is when they didn't trust themselves and felt like, well, this person must know better and let me go against my intuition and stick with it to see if I'll break through to something. And that doesn't mean that we're, I'm not saying choose the easy path. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I do think if we've experienced trauma and we're like, let's, okay, let's do a meditation practice. That you'll, when you contact a teacher or teachings that can work for you, they're not saying I'm gonna make you feel better. I don't think they're actually saying, Hey, this is a path. And let me back up even further to your question. What would they look for? If, if, if trauma's in the mix here, I would say, does someone have an experience working with trauma? If you ask them the question like, Hey, 
I sometimes have these symptoms. How would you work with it in meditation? If they haven't thought about it, that might be a sign that you need to work with someone else or get some extra, some different, uh, an extra support. Mm -hmm. But I, I trust people so much that they know exactly, they'll start vibrating. Oh God, that's so cheesy that I said that, but you know what I mean? Like you just, when you hear of a teacher, you know, like I heard, do you know Tara Brock? Yes. Yes. I love Tara. And Tara was someone that I met her in, oh gosh, I don't know, early 2000s. And I was like, this is no bullshit. This woman is here telling the truth. She's not selling anything. She came to Vancouver, was doing a retreat. And I was like, you've been through some shit. She's been through some hard stuff. She's worked with trauma and she's just not blowing any sunshine. So that she worked for me. And, and then, you know, someone like Sam, Sam Harris is a way different than Tara mm-hmm. and brings a very particular vibe. And he works for a number of people. I have so much respect for him. So anyway, I think it's, I think it's like finding your people. What what do you say to people about finding their path? Yeah, I'm so with you on that. And I love that you put this element of trust. Let just trust your body, trust what your what that inner voice is saying to you. Trust your gut when you start when you enter into a meditation or you are looking up a meditation teacher. It's like, yeah, finding your community who can who's not just um going to be a great teacher for you, but who's representing some really amazing part of you. Um, I think that that's so important too. And that's why there's such a fantastic call for diverse teachers to, for you to really find someone who can resonate with you in that way. And uh, yeah, I float through so many different types of um, meditation teachers. I've Mm. started out um, when I, when I, you know, really took on to the road of atheism um, and Sam Harris came out with his app that was a meditation practice that I really gravitated towards yeah, because bet. it just, it wasn't spiritual at all. And it was exactly right. what I needed. Um, felt like I really, really appreciated that. Um, and this was when back when the app first came out, the meditations were just like seven to 10 minutes yeah, and they were, Oh yeah. my gosh. And at one point I remember he said for this meditation, we're going to keep our eyes open. And I was like, my gosh, my mind is blown. Mm-hmm. Um, because at that point, my meditation experience had been, you know, sit in a room for 60 minutes at my yoga studio and try really hard to have no thoughts. And I was like, how the fuck are people doing this? Yeah. How is this possible? Yeah. And I think in your conversation with, with him, uh, he mentioned going on, you know, some retreat in like Nepal or some or something and on a meditation retreat there. And this woman was saying like, you know, I haven't had a thought in seven days. And I was like, oh my God, I was surrounding myself with those people at one point, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah. kind of almost like aggravated the practice in a way because I had this like voice inside of, inside of me and my gut was telling me like, this isn't it for you, you know? Um, but I loved what yoga and what meditation represented. I loved this idea of peace of serenity of calmness and for me i only saw that people who were doing yoga and meditation teachers were the only ones that had a grasp on these concepts and so that's why i i went into that direction not realizing that there's a whole gray area that you can explore cuz it almost seemed like almost like an either or either you weren't practicing yoga and meditation and you were too part of attachment you were you know constantly suffering or you were part of yoga and meditation and you were letting go you were finally like 
finding the light and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sam, I love uh, like certain teachers like Sam. I think really demystify the practice, and it's not it's it's simple but not easy. And right. and then a big part of what I feel like I've been saying in my work that is not uh, not necessarily new but can challenge some orthodoxy is to say when it comes to trauma and nervous system regulation, meditation and mindfulness, that's one tool. It's one very often helpful tool, but people who are traumatized and communities that are traumatized, they need a whole array often of different self-regulation tools to enable them again, to live powerful, happy lives. And if I think if any of us go too headlong into just meditation or fall into that a certain trap there, then I do think we can get stuck. Um, but then there's the problem of spiritual materialism and just, you know, we're dabbling, we're dig what is the expression? We're digging like 20 holes in the beach that are only a foot deep and we're not going deep in anything. So it's it is a balance that I think we need to we need to find. Absolutely. And I also noticed how um, the the types of meditations that I do um, or that I crave are different depending on what stage I'm at in my life. Totally. My, uh, my partner and I decided to split back in September and it was quite a big fracture for me. Yeah. And I could not do any of Sam's meditations. Like I could not almost like be alone inside of my head just because I felt like I was split into a million pieces and I needed something that was much more guided to kind of hold me together in those uh, small, quiet moments. And at first, it's so interesting, David, at first I put myself on such a high standard where I was like, no, you're not going to do these, you know, very heavily guided meditations because you've been doing this for much longer and you don't need that. You just need to like push through. And I just kept hating sitting down with myself. Like I just just, I started to hate the practice. I was like, girl, you need some flexibility with this. Like, For sure. And so that's where I, I started to like have a little bit more compassion and, and openness to understanding that like, yeah, you can sometimes, you know, there were some days where I could do a 30 minute meditation that was like completely eyes closed that had no guidance whatsoever. Um, and I was just completely in my own head and, and practicing uh, being present to then being only able to do like, you know, five minutes of something that was really guided. And both of those serve a purpose. Like you said before, like in both of those different practices, you can still find mindfulness. You can still find ways to come back to the present moment and exercise that muscle, so to speak. And I'm curious if you can actually, because I know that there's someone who's going to be listening who's going to say like, well, I haven't gone through any trauma, but every time I sit down to meditate, I feel maybe a little bit anxious or I feel some type of discomfort. Can you tell us the difference between a regular meditative discomfort that just comes with, you know, trying to sit with yourself and trying to um, find the present moment and then um, something that might happen when you're much more dysregulated? This gets, you're right on uh, the essence to me or one of the core issues around trauma and meditation is, it's a question that I often get is when do you lean in and when do you back off? And so I I just appreciate the question that you're asking and why I started at the beginning by saying, uh, I'm not talking about coddling, get back to coddling, Mm -hmm. is sometimes people can hear trauma sensitive and go, oh God. I mean, I had that response where it's like, oh, we're just trying to keep everyone comfortable. And 
I think there's been a wave of uh, I, one person, Jonathan Haidt described it as something called safetyism. If you've heard this term where it's actually saying that there's a, a new kind of religion around safety and emotional safety that we have to make with trigger warnings and making sure that everyone feels just right. And I mean, there's arguments on both sides, but all to say that you just nailed it. It's like, how would you know when you actually needed to back off during this breakup and do something different? And when do you hang in because that was the, you were suffering and that that was what was being asked of you. And so the practice could hold you in that. And it's bringing hard to know, I think, when do you lean in? When do you back off? At a very practical level, there's a, uh, a, a three-circle map, which I use. And in the middle circle, it's known as like a, you can picture it, uh, like a safe zone. And then the next circle out is a learning zone. And then the final circle out is an, a zone of overwhelm. And this maps on this, this um, person Vygotsky is a zone of proximal development, which is for education. It's like, hey, look, we need to challenge students, but if we give them too much, we're going to overwhelm them. And if it's not giving them enough, they're just safe. It's so they're just not going to learn anything. So where's that sweet spot? So a number of meditation teachers I know will put those three circles on the wall and they'll say, look, I can give you some benchmarks to help you know when to back off. But if you at any point start to feel really overwhelmed, that might be a sign that you need to either open your eyes, take a break from practice. Like you'll know, you'll have that spidey sense of when you're in overwhelm. A couple, I'll just say really briefly, a couple of examples would be you are, your heart is racing so intensely that you can't focus. You're hyperventilating. You have a super exaggerated startle response or you're dissociating, you're super numb, you're shut down, foggy, disorganized cognitive processing. Again, think of the accelerator and the brake slammed. If you're on either ends of those extremes, that might be a sign that it's time to, to back off a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And so I feel like this is all really developing our own self-awareness and how no one can decide for us. Like we have to almost make those decisions for ourselves. You know, there isn't the one, two, three, this is how it'll look and this is how it'll feel. 100%. And this is where of the people, I'll include myself here in my own trauma work, and maybe you might have your own take on this. The people I know who have come through some pretty hard shit and healed, did some really powerful work around trauma what they what i see from them on the other side is that they they know what they need they often know what they need in a given moment and they might know you know what this conversation i need to back off a little bit or i have a half an hour in me or i don't want to watch this movie or i really want to challenge myself here that they actually know how to self-regulate because they've been through the storm and so i think of trauma-informed mindfulness at its fullest expression as someone knows in a moment-to-moment -moment way what's going to support them. Not, mm -hmm. And not just to be happy, not just like, oh, so I can, it's not all sunshine and roses. It's just to know what the right next step is along the path. Do you want to tell us what the window of tolerance is? Because you mentioned it before, but you didn't really go into that. And I think that this will be good to coincide with what you were just saying. Yeah, happy to. So 
The window of tolerance is also known as an optimal zone of physiological arousal. So, you know, you and I could both do it or any pe people that are listening. You just take a moment and notice, okay, if I, if I take my attention inward and there's a zone in the middle where I can be kind, you know, somewhat present with my experience, and then there's a zone of too much energy or too little energy, where am I right now? Like on a scale of zero to 10, where would you place yourself? And that's what we're practicing in meditation is learning where we are in our window and what we need to actually come back into our window. But let me just add with the trauma. So when someone experiences trauma or ongoing traumatic stress, they often end up out of their window of tolerance, meaning the accelerator slam down and they're feeling hypervigilant, super anxious, or the brakes slam down and they're dissociated or numb. And that means it's pretty hard to be present with ourselves, with the people around us, and with our lives. It's And being in our window doesn't mean that we're calm. We can be angry, we can be rageful and in our window, but when we're out of our window, we experience less agency, less, less autonomy, less choice. We're more reactive and we're more in the lowest, at the older parts of our brainstem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of the fight flight, we're down and freeze. It's just harder to be in complexity. So that's why I think under pressure, we're experiencing such intense political polarization, which is a whole other conversation. But, you know, just like right, wrong, this person's all that messed up. And that's because mm -hmm. I think so many of us are outside of our window. So that's the short, short of the window. Um, and it really maps over well over to trauma. That's such a great way to put it where trauma um, or uh, certain situations can kind of like hijack our brains into totally. those more animalistic or reptilian parts where we're just fight, flight, or freeze. And we don't really have that higher thinking uh, available to us in those moments. And it feels quite yes. visceral. Yes. Oh, if we could just hang here for 30 seconds. So the, here's the research. The research on meditation says that it strengthens our prefrontal cortex. It's actually a thicker area of the brain. People might know that research, which means that we often have more executive function or executive control over the lower parts of the brain stem, the limbic system, the reptilian brain, so we can actually modulate. So if you think about mapping that to trauma, when we're experiencing trauma in an ongoing way, our limbic system, often our amygdala, is firing the alarm. Ideally, we can come in with the prefrontal cortex and say, I'm aware what's happening and I can actually uh, quote unquote manage this experience or I can self-regulate. If we, if we don't have a strong enough prefrontal cortex, the limbic system's firing off and we're at the, the whim of our emotional brains. And so this is again why meditation helps. The stronger that our prefrontal cortex is, the more that we can actually regulate the lower, as you said, the lower brainstem functions. Did you hear this? Um, have you even watched The uh, Social Dilemma? Did you see this documentary? Yeah, sure did. Tristan, was it Tristan? I forget his last name. Tristan Harris. Tristan Harris. It, it talks about that social media is really the race to the bottom of the brainstem which you know here we are like that's it's 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 appealing to our base base instincts around mm -hmm. outrage and the those intense emotions and the more that we're practicing meditation the more that we can see that happening anyway that's that's a whole other podcast of course but no i'm geeking out so hard i'm like yes like absolutely so much yes to everything that you're saying and the uh the area of prefrontal cortex is also um it's almost like 
uh, I imagine the prefrontal cortex is kind of like the wise adult. And then you're mm-hmm. like limbic brain and your reptilian brain are kind of like the inner child. And sometimes your wise adult can like talk down to the inner child and can kind of like calm it down and mm-hmm. let it know that it's safe and it's okay to, you know, be itself or whatever it is. And that meditation can um, strengthen that like wise inner voice or whatnot. That's the way that I, yeah, that's the way that I tried to imagine it. And I think that it's so perfect that you said that because trauma does take over those areas and it's so hard to get your prefrontal cortex back online, Mm -hmm. like back in the driver's seat, so to speak. Yep. And so having this regular practice, I mean, it's to say it's so similar to going to the gym. Like as soon as you're in that regular practice, it's easier for it to come back online. Like it's easier for your prefrontal cortex to strengthen. But if you only do, you know, stuff like once in a while, it's less so. Yeah, this is totally. And this is where the window of tolerance, I've met people who go, when you, when I've taught them the window of tolerance, they've said, holy shit, I've been out of my window and I didn't even know it for a long time uh, because of trauma or maybe just dysregulation more generally. So um, yeah, I'm with you. The more that we develop that, I've heard it described also as the watchtower, like this ability to kind of, which I love, like you're looking over and you see the fire happening, but you can see it. But I had never mapped it over to uh, the what did you the parent or the good the wise parent the wise inner yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense actually that you can have more regulation that's great I love that yeah um, I'm curious if you wanted to also touch on anchors um, really quickly because I think that that is going to be able to close this up you know for someone who wants to start their own uh, practice or wants to change their own practice a little bit of anchors of attention mm-hmm. yeah sure so. You know, there's like hundreds of modifications that you can make to meditation, but one is around anchors. Um, Anchors are often used as a way to cultivate some mental stability or concentration. So most common one is often the breath. Uh, You know, hey, class, uh, you know, close your eyes, pay attention to the breath, the nostrils or the rising and falling of the chest or abdomen. When your mind wanders into thought, which it will, gently bring your attention back to this anchor and that cultivates some mental stability and concentration. So that's, you know, it's a very common instruction, often very helpful. And a trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive approach says, well, the breath isn't always going to be neutral mm-hmm. for someone struggling with trauma because someone's, our sympathetic nervous system is intimately tied to our respiratory system. And so if you're asking someone to pay attention to the breath, they might be coming into contact with traumatic stimuli That's not automatically a bad thing, but it might not be the easiest place to cultivate concentration. So you could also pay attention to your feet, or maybe it's your buttocks in the chair, or it could also be an external anchor. Like I have a window that looks out into a great pine tree. It's, I can also cultivate mental stability focusing on the pine tree. I'm not less than, I'm not a a worse meditator by not focusing on the breath. The breath can be helpful, but not always. Sounds another one. You can use anchors like sound. It's experimenting. and um, But just knowing that you can use different anchors, that's one really simple modification if the breath is taking you out of your window, but you still want to be practicing meditation. I love that. Again, it's making it really uh, reachable and approachable. It's not... It, my, I, I have a friend who's pregnant and, you know, I asked her recently, 
what's your ideal birth plan? And, you know, she's, she's pretty good with that, knowing that like, you know, you can have an idea for your birth plan, yeah. but like, good luck. <laughs> it's never going to go the way that you think. Yeah. Um, so she said, I'm actually focusing on things that I can bring to whatever situation that happens. And I, I jumped to the words like, oh, right. You know, you want to bring, you know, joy or being empowered. And she said, honestly, I don't even think empowerment or joy are going to be accessible to me in those moments, but maybe I can bring curiosity and interest and being present. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that is just mm-hmm. like that reframe for her made the whole, um, the birth experience is going to be so much more accessible to her because she has this like reframe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just, anyways, I've just uh, going on uh, that the more that we reframe these um, types of situations, the more that we can grasp them and the more that mm-hmm. we can understand them. And then the more that we can, I think, apply them. This might, you know, this might actually be as, I, as we're winding down, like that you're, you're landing the, the plane to me is if we're practicing meditation, mindfulness will often reveal trauma. It will, it will show us where we have been holding or where we're hurt. And that if we encounter trauma, that that's not automatically a bad thing. And that's often, I'm training often teachers, yoga teachers, meditation teachers, and I have to remind them and myself that if someone gets triggered in a, in a meditation that you're leading, that's not bad news. That actually might be great news for them, that they're encountering something that they had been hiding from themselves. And so, uh, yes, they may need tools, but we're not just trying to tamp down all the hard experiences we live through. Actually, these are really transformative practices that we're involved in. And most of us, we want to heal, want to have like better lives where we don't feel as hijacked by um, old stuff running the show. And so I just appreciate that we're kind of coming back to the not coddling. It's like, no, it's okay. We might get triggered. Mm. And there are practices and people that can hold us through it. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm really glad that you definitely touched on the coddling part of that. I wanted to sink my teeth into it a little bit more um, because I'm definitely, I'm not a person who uses um, trigger warnings. I don't use content warnings. I think that those things are, should be reserved for things that are explicitly violent and explicitly could cause trauma and whatnot. And yeah. so I think, um, you know, like, uh, let's say this conversation and we've been talking about trauma quite a bit. I'm not going to put a trigger warning on the podcast because the trigger warning would be the name of the sh- of the episode, let's say. But I deeply care about people's well-being and I deeply care about making sure that I respect boundaries and that I listen and I'm open um, to people's experiences. And so I love this idea of not coddling people and being informed of experiences to make better decisions that help and facilitate well-being of them as well. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be an either or. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be like either you're coddling people or it's a free-for-all. You know, there's a massive gray area there. Yes. And that's what we're learning to work in. That's the that's to me, all of us. Like we're all in the gray. I'm sure people listening, like we're we're figuring it out. There's no roadmap (laughs) as we go. And um and making the best decisions we can about when to turn left, turn right. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Best. David, thank you so much for coming on here today. Where can everyone find you online if they wanted to touch base further? Yeah. So my website, it's the best place to go. Um, it's www.davidtrelevin.com, which is 
I won't T R E L E A V E N. That's how you'll find me. And um, I'll just say that if someone wants to go kind of the next level into understanding some of the potential pitfalls in meditation, there's a free there's a free webinar on there um, where I got to really break down like here's what you need to know about where you can fall into traps um, along the way. So that's a, a resource that I'm happy to have out there. Amazing. Thank you so much again. I know that this is so informative for so many people. So we really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have you back and we'll do this uh, round two. Yeah. Sounds great, Kenzie. Thank you. All right, friends, you made it to the end of the episode. You know what to do now. Head over to our Instagram account, Conversations with Kenzie, and let us know what you loved about the episode. Or let us know what you didn't love. What questions did we miss? What questions could we have asked differently? Let us know there. As always, stay curious, keep asking questions, and keep making conversations in your everyday life. Until next time.